Thank you for listening to the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. This is Anna Sanchez, your host. Today, we will be speaking with Miss Brennan Warren. She is a medical ICU nurse, and she will share her intimate emotions that she and her peers have been going through throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. We are extremely thankful and very gracious that she came in our virtual podcast. So let's hear it. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. This is Ana Sanchez, your host. Today, we are going to have our awesome uh, nurse, uh, Ms. Brennan Warren, and she will be talking to us about her experiences and how um, it is going in mental health as she works in the medical ICU. So welcome, Ms. Brennan. Tell us how you are, what do you do, Invite us in your in your own world in the nursing. Okay. Well, um, hi, my name is Brennan. I'm a, a nurse in the medical ICU. Um, it has sort of become a COVID ICU. About 95% of our patients are suffering from COVID. And we've grown. We're actually utilizing a section of the hospital that technically is not an ICU, but we have made it ICU compatible, like with the monitoring and the staff and everything. So now it is a 30-bed ICU, and about 95% of those patients are COVID positive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, we still see cardiac patients who are just like stents and STEMIs and stuff like that, but uh, even, you know, they're looped into us, but most of our patients are COVID positive. And when you're a, when you're already a, like sick enough to be in the ICU and you get COVID on top of it, you're just very high acuity, very sick. So, yeah. um, yeah. How many patients do you care for? Um, right now, a lot of us are tripled. Normally we only get two ICU patients at once mm-hmm. with the, short staff that we're sort of struggling through a lot of us have three at a time wow oh my goodness i I will say that i'm certified in something called i i'm sure your audience knows but crrt the continuous renal replacement Mm -hmm. there i'm certified in that so many of my shifts because a lot of these icu patients go into acute kidney failure because of the microclotting and the dic and the the inflammatory mediators clog up and kill the kidneys. So a lot of them get started on either regular dialysis or CRRT if they're really unstable. So if I have CRRT, most of the time I have one patient, but sometimes I also have another one. And it's very tough because CRRT, you have a lot of chores and labs and math and uh, it's really you have to be on that patient really a lot. So most of the time I'm on CRRT and most of the time I have one patient at a time. How, wow, that's that's heavy acuity, high acuity patient load. How do you even prepare yourself mentally in uh, a, a daily as you, we've been in this pandemic for about a year now? Yeah, I mean, 
when you're providing care to your high acuity, I mean, they're in most of our ICU. I'm not speaking for like 100% ICU, but most of the time they're intubated, sedated. Sometimes they're paralyzed if they're still fighting vent in some way, mm-hmm. especially, especially if we have to prone them. We, we've been proning people like crazy. So what is that for those of us in psychiatry oh. that are not sure about what proning is? Oh, it's just where you flip the patient on their stomach to Got utilize it. like alveoli in the back mm-hmm. of the lung. Mm. Uh, and it can increase your SATs. It, it can make your um, blood gases better. It can improve, but it's very hard because it's dead weight, right? Mm. So you got to get your team in there to flip them and maintain all your lines. And what if they're on dialysis or, you know, you just have, and they're intubated. So you got to have respiratory in there. So you have to manage a lot of, a lot of things simultaneously. And, you know, you're managing um, doctor's orders from multiple specialties, whether they're like Mm. a kidney patient or a cardiac patient, and they're an intensivist patient, you might be getting orders from all three of these different docs. Um, your pro, you know, proning, supining, we in the ICU at my institution, we are the rapid response to other floors. Wow. Okay. Because it's a small enough institution that there is not, a, especially on night shift. So especially on night shift, there is no dedicated rapid response team. That would be us. So we grab our stuff and we run to other floors if a code blue or a rapid is called while we're managing our own ICU patients, you know, we're still in charge of bathing, cleaning, turning, mouth care. Um, and you just, to prepare for it, you just put a lot of trust in your team, the tremendous people around you. Mm. And um, you just sort of rely on it, on each other. Like if you are mad about something, you know you have somebody to vent to. We've hugged each other if we're crying Mm. like I you know you just you have to find those people to lean on because you can't carry all of it on your own and everybody I I work with a wonderful team of of people so I've I've never felt like I'm drowning you know wow that is amazing (laughs) that you have that team camaraderie that that teamwork that helps you through a a very busy 12-hour shift. How did you guys prepare for this in the pandemic initially? How did that evolve? And of course, we all learned about COVID-19 and how it's affecting us and medications and what medication would work. How did that evolve for you guys? How were the stressors on on the training? And you got to learn quickly, right? Yeah. So it's crazy because we were just talking about this the other night at work. We're like, do you remember this time last year where we were like, hey, there's this virus over in China. Mm. Wow. That's crazy. They're like setting up ICUs and, and gyms and buildings. And this, wow, this, it looks kind of crazy over there. And then we're just kind of sitting around talking about it. And now we're like, oh, my goodness, it's been a it's been almost a year, like March. I remember having mm-hmm. the very first the very first patient in our ICU and the doc comes up to me and does the little hand signal, the plus signal. 
And that was our first patient. Ah, okay. And and it's been uh, it's been strange living through this year of policies changing and um, how what we do to clean our PPE because when the PPE was in such short supply, mm-hmm. we would have to save our N95s and they would um, they would clean them and we would put them in those little bags and they would like not centrifuge. What's that thing where they like clean them like you clean? surgical supplies right yeah I, I hear you I'm, I'm trying to think of the word it'll come to me later <laughs> but um but yeah like <clears throat> saving gowns and saving masks and face shields and um then we would put the iv poles outside of the room so it would minimize having to go in and out and bringing the any virus outside in the hall and but then that was creating problems because the iv tubing you know, you could have bacteria crawl all over the IV tubing and not, you know, obviously not know it. Mm-hmm. But what if there could be infections associated with the tubing being on the floor? So we stopped doing that. And then we were letting people come in and see the patients. And then we stopped Ooh, again. Okay. So it's been this fluid policy change regarding care of these of these guys. So when did they stop telling the family, nope, you can't come in now? When well, did in our... In our particular institution, it um, we've changed it multiple times, but within the past few weeks, it's gone back down to an z- absolute zero visitor policy. Mm. And I think, I think that's because it's just so full. Mm. Wow. I don't, I don't like, um, I don't like that policy. I think it's heartbreaking policy. Yeah. Because the. It's like they're just alone all day, all night. And I don't, you know, I don't care if they're sedated or not. They're still like in there. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking when I just, when they, when they don't have anybody with a familiar voice talking to them or anybody touching them. I mean, we, we come in and we try to get them to wake up for us and I'm, I'm, big about like talking to them even though they might not hear me like I'm about to give you your insulin mm-hmm. like even even if they can't hear me I'll still tell them stuff and if it's something I really like if it's a very very sick frail person that for some reason the family is still doing all measures like all this heroic measures I straight up apologize to them mm. it's like I'm sorry that I have to tighten your restraints right now because you're pulling at your tube so you, you, of course, you continue as a, as an awesome healthcare um, nurse and provider to your patient population. You continue to give them dignified care, respect, right? I do my very best, and sometimes it's behind a. It's sometimes I'm crying behind that mask because part of me is mm. at odds with myself because I'm, I'm following the orders written for me. I'm good at following orders, but it's like. You just don't agree with some of this stuff. It's like, and I feel like maybe, just maybe, if we allowed these families to see with their eyes, and I'm not talking about everywhere. It's like there are some people on the COVID floor who are doing fine. Like they just need nasal care, they need some respiratory support mm-hmm. and dialysis or something, and they're doing fine, thankfully. But my 
patient population. If their family could only see in person how horrible their family members look, the invasive nature of what we've been doing to them, like sticking something in every available hole just to keep them going, then maybe some of them would advocate for comfort rather than heroic measures. Uh, Maybe that makes me sound like some sort of horrible beast, but it's just burdensome when someone lies alone. Sometimes we have these guys for months before, before we finally allow them to do what they need to do naturally Mm. or they they code and we have to code them and are unable to get them back. And we, we talked about the ACLS and you have to do that and talk to me even with that process. I mean, that's a lot of things going on in the medical ICU floor. I mean, and you're just one facility that we're talking about. How does that even when there's a code blue? Well, when there's a code blue, it's um, it's just some organized chaos. A, a code blue brings out everybody, and it should. You know, it brings out the docs and, like, even if it's someone on a different floor, not mm-hmm. an ICU, it'll bring the intensive. Like the intensivist always comes down to to talk with the hospitalist or mm-hmm. another specialty. Like all the docs are in communication with one another. The respiratory just in case we have to intubate, Mm. you know, there's nurses who are doing the compressions and they're doing the drugs and somebody's in the back writing stuff. There's, I mean, the, the management and the code blue is, I mean, the lab is waiting. X-ray is waiting. EKG is waiting. Everybody's waiting to be called upon. So it is, I mean, it's, you, you, you look out there and you see all your resources and it's very, um, comforting. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's really scary when you're when you're not getting that patient back, and somebody's like, "Call the family, call the family." Yeah. It's just, um, and then I I do want to give a special shout out to yeah. the to the chaplains at yes. my mm-hmm. particular institution because I have cried with them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have I have prayed with them in the hall, um. I love when I see them because they they come even with if there's not an emergency, like if if a family wants to talk to them or they need guidance. Maybe they've never even reached out to God before. Yeah. Yeah. And in a desperate situation, they reach out. And how much is a chaplain like how much mental um, strain is that on them when they're only present in a family's most desperate time? Mm so when I see a chaplain coming down the hall, I like always try to make time for them. Like they are just this like glue that holds us all together that we don't even know. Wow. It, uh, for me, I talk about the spiritual pillar or the pillars of of health, which is the spiritual, the social, the physical and the mental. So you touched on the chaplains being there with you guys, not not only for the patients, but also for the staff. Oh, yeah. They are whether there's anything going on or not, at least at my hospital. Even if it's 2 a.m., they'll take a walk and they'll come ask us, you having a good night? Mm. Mm. 
one of them is hilarious and he'll stop and tell us <laughs> stories and talk about his funny family and like make us seriously crack up in the midst of awfulness. So that laughter so, helps, huh? No, like, there's, yeah, when I see one particular chaplain coming down the hall, I'm like, oh, he's about to crack us all up. <laughs> you look forward to those nights then. There's another woman who's my age who has a little one, so we talk about our kids Aww. together. Oh, that, that humanity, that connection that we have, huh? Yeah. yeah. And there's one, there's one who I've read his book about his mission work. I mean, just these men and women are like so vital and sometimes... And so they're just this quiet, peaceful presence. And sometimes we just kind of forget. But then during a code, your eyes will meet. Mm. Okay, the chaplain's here. Okay, okay. Wow. <laughs> we, we got we got a strong presence with us. Let's let's keep going. Wonderful, wonderful. That is a, that is a good thing. I I like that positivity. In the midst of the chaos that's going on, how do you mentally prepare yourself? Okay, your patient is tanking down. Mentally, you're keeping an eye on them, right? How do you rush, put on the gown, put on whatever needs to be done to protect yourself as well? Tell us about that process and how you handle that. Like... um at work or when I'm not at work? Yeah, at, at work. When there's when you know your patient is is not in a good state mm-hmm. and then code blue is called. Uh-huh. So now everybody rushes in there but then still continue that protection, right? Uh-huh. How do you mentally well, prepare? I always I always find my like it seems like when you do enough codes with your team you find your place Mm. and so I when I feel something happening we go grab a crash cart right because if it's right outside the door then at least you just have it so that's one piece of preparation the other piece is when it when a code blue or a rapid is called it's like everybody has their own little spot and where I like to be is timekeeper Mm. I'm very, I'm very particular because in ACLS, you have your every two minutes, your three to five minutes, your pulse checks and your, you know, slapping the pads on them and everything. So it's like, I like to do that because it's, I like keeping very particular time and calling out and the dog will say, how long till this? And I'll know exactly the answer to keep everybody in sync. Right, like everybody on track, and I can have my, I can stay calm and peaceful and write the time and stay, that's just kind of what I like to do. And if if I'm the first one, obviously I'll hop on chest compressions. If I'm the first one to notice we lost a pulse, I'll yell for help, press the button and start going for it. But if Mm. I'm coming into a situation, I always say, I got time. Okay, and so you will call it out. Yeah, like that's kind of where I find my strength is um, that keeping everybody else just calmly in line, calmly two minutes or three to five minutes or whatever. So that way, no one's saying, how long till this? How long till this? How long till this? Mm-hmm. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Ms. Brennan, does that help you be in control of the situation in this pandemic that we don't have control of? being the timekeeper in in the midst of that code 
Um, I think I try to do everything I can do in my power to keep it peaceful. Mm. And, and I think if I'm like, guys, I got time, then nobody else has to think about it. Nobody mm. else has to say, oh, my gosh, how long has it been since the last one? Mm. Or nobody has to interrupt each other. Like, yes, sometimes codes are very chaotic, but at least if I can have some say, you're good, you got 30 seconds. Mm. I can provide a little bit of quiet peace in the chaos. Right. Wow. Mm -hmm. We had a code the other day, and the nurse practitioner was excellent at timekeeping. He was like, you have 45 seconds. Okay, it's been 15 seconds. Like, he was awesome. Wonderful. He's a family nurse practitioner, or what kind of uh, NP is he? He's an acute care NP. Acute, okay, okay. He has has tons of experience. He's extremely smart. Um, Doesn't speak to us very kindly. (laughs) (laughs) Aww. But um, he has a lot of um, good experience, and you can learn a lot from him. It's just sometimes he doesn't speak to the nurses very nice. (laughs) Aww. Maybe he's going through something. We don't know, right? Exactly. It (laughs) manifests into that irritability and anger that maybe he's not able to talk about it, maybe displacing I don't know him. Uh, I I have not diagnosed him, uh, but maybe open up. Hopefully he will. Um, how do you um, collaborate with the social workers? How do you collaborate? Because I know for me, I've uh, seen patients as a psych nurse practitioner in the COVID floor as well. So talk to us that process of uh collaborations with the respiratory therapist, the family, you kind of touched on that. And how do you talk to the psych nurse practitioners and the social works, social workers who are in with the team providing care as well? Well, I will say that seeing as how I'm night shift, mm. I, I don't, I'm not part of interdisciplinary rounds like the day shift people are. Uh. So when I pick up days that I, I am part, so I, I, can only, I can only say that during morning rounds, when everybody is present, everybody is listening, everybody is putting in their input, that is when you get the most communication from everybody, the, the pharmacy, the dietitian, the, the, res, the respiratory, the physical therapy, speech therapy, like everybody is... Even the chaplain is involved in interdisciplinary rounds. Wonderful. So everybody is giving their input. At night, my main collaboration is with the intensivist. Mm. If it's a different specialty and I'm having to call the nephrologist or I'm having to call the cardiologist, then I have direct contact with them But and respiratory all night long. Yeah. I'm in constant communication. I have to draw my ABGs all the time and... um just I rely on the respiratory so much of course yeah but as far as like case workers and social workers I don't really talk to them much because that is not business hours mm, mm. <laughs> yeah uh, for me I, I have to collaborate with them and make sure that the of course the patient uh, is okay um, mental health wise and how ready they'll be when you know the patient comes back home so 
we also have, seeing as how we have a zero visitor policy, mm-hmm. we have nurse who is, or we have two, one, yeah, I think we have two. I don't believe we have one overnight. The charge nurse pretty much takes that role, but the family liaison is responsible for, you know, organizing FaceTime. Mm. If, I mean, a lot of our patients are intubated and sedated, so they can't really do FaceTime, but if they can, they organize that, any phone conversations, Wonderful. Um, giving updates and delivering messages. And the docs will often call the family personally with updates, especially if there's, you know, a turn for the worse or if there's a code situation asking the family, which direction should we go here? Mm-hmm. If there's a progression or moving to comfort measures or an end of life decision, like, and that's, that there again pulls at my heart that sometimes mm-hmm. family cannot be present in person. I just wish I could, I wish I could change the policy, but I guess I understand why it's in place, but I really, maybe part of me hates it more for the other COVID units yeah. because for like just the regular COVID floors, especially if there's like a dementia patient yes. or a confused, mm. all they see are strangers in masks. Like they don't have anything familiar and it's really, really sad and it, it like, breaks you down when you just see this old person alone in the room all day. And they're probably their dementia, their psychosis is also exacerbated because they're not in a familiar setting. You know, the family's not there. They cannot talk. They don't know how to call. So everything familiar to them has been stripped away and then we're not allowing visitors. Mm. Mm. And that that is that is a, a thing that you know, I don't know how we would continue and how we would move on to this, um, you know, and hopefully n- not too long now since we're oh, yeah. vaccinating. Um, exactly. I am very hopeful. Just just because I'm sad right now doesn't mean I'm not hopeful. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about the sadness. Um, well, just when you have over and over again like the same story that plays out in, I'm not talking about everywhere. I'm talking about in the medical ICU that they have comorbidities and they get COVID on top of it. And they spend a lot of time with us. They get worse. They go into multi-system failure. Mm. We're giving them drug after drug to support this, to support that, to prevent what's causing this. They're on an insulin drip because of the steroids we're giving them. It puts them into this diabetic situation, even if they weren't diabetic before. It's like they just go down this terrible road and it's just, it saddens you to see it over and over again. Yeah. That's that's not to say we stop trying or the docs stop uh, collaborating with each other. And it's just you see it so much and it's like, okay, who's next? (laughs) Do you guys brace yourself in the medical ICU? Like, okay, this Thanksgiving, we know it's going to spike up or we know there's an event, it's going to spike up. How do you even brace yourself for that? I think the institution did a a good job bracing for increased load because they they very quickly, because our unit used to be only 12 beds, 
and then four beds were a cardiac where because we we don't do open heart but we do cardiac stents Mm. so four beds were for those patients four beds were for pcu and that's it so when covid hit the hospital quickly made the like all 24 of the beds on our floor covid ready Wow. Like they put in the negative pressure systems to like blow air out the window. They, um, they fixed the, the monitors so that they were all ICU monitors. Cause on the regular floors, you, you just have your, you go in and do your vitals and you write, you, you put them in the computer yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in ICU, they automatically like cross over. Wow. <laughs> with some computer magic that I don't know. (laughs) The computer magicians came and they converted everything into ICU ready. Wow. And then when the patient load continued to go up, the hospital quickly converted a regular floor next door to us on the same floor so we wouldn't have to go up and down stairs into another one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, another like nine beds ready for overflow. That's amazing. Innovation, right? Innovation amidst this chaos, this pandemic. Do you, yeah. do you feel that your hospital administration supported you guys? Uh, a lot of support? Um, well, I'll, I'll answer as a staff nurse. I'm not in management and I'm not <laughs> a charge nurse, so I don't have the connection to, at, to administration mm-hmm. like people might have, but I can just say that I've seen the hospital work quickly to accommodate this this increased patient load, even the, when we have to utilize ER as overflow or something like that, like they've put measures in place to help us cope as best we can being a smaller institution. Mm, I mean, it, it even goes so far, like our cafeteria isn't open overnight. So administration has been sort of buying us dinner and preparing, you know, like, it's just nice. And people are going to complain and people are going to say this and that, but I'm trying to be just, I'm trying to find the good. Hey, yeah. man, they got a pizza tonight. Yay. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. It's usually during Veterans Day that we get the free dinner or right. Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, they're just, we're all just trying to do our best. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, maybe you get mad or staffing stinks sometimes and you get really upset and you have to advocate. But for the, I can just speak to, to me, like I've just felt, honestly, it's more my charge nurse. I feel like my charge nurse is awesome. And if I go oh. to them with something like I can trust or my manager who is an actual angel sent from the Lord. Like yeah. I can trust that she will advocate for us. Wow, that 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 just tells you that you guys are a team at this uh, medical ICU floor. I love it. It's just we and with with all the increased stuff, increase of um, the management, especially with proning, it just takes so many people. But you mm-hmm. can always. We're just always ready to be nice to one another. Maybe it's night shift. Maybe we're nicer on nights. But <laughs> even, when I, even when I pick up days, I just, the, the teamwork on my floor is, I can't really 
put into words the bigness of it, but it's it's big and it's important. Yeah, well, studies have shown that during world war or pandemic, the people usually come together and they help each other and be able to be nice to each other and be able to cope with with what's going on. So oh, totally. is- and I've I've seen that so much. Like when you're, I don't know, at least the I've always felt that my team members were nice and helpful, even when I was brand new. Nobody mm-hmm. ever talked down. Nobody ever treated me like an idiot. And now it's just so much more like you can just rely on your nurses, RTs, your techs, everybody. Wonderful. That is wonderful, Ms. Brennan, that uh, now that you're a subject matter expert, SME, in this COVID floor, that you are making changes in the lives of, of uh, your patients and also your staff, the staffing. Yeah, I just try to be a calm and peaceful presence to someone <laughs> who might need it. And that you are. So tell us, walk us through a, a scenario where a patient in the COVID floor, I, a medical ICU does not make it. How do you process that as a team as a nurse, as oh. a mother, uh, how do you begin to work that out? Well, um, we all, there's just this whole process, right? So we all helped clean the room first because it's a, it's a mess. It's a darn mess, mm. especially if they're covid and they've succumbed to the cytokine storm i don't you know i'm not an expert on cytokine storm but it's just a horrible full body reaction like an inflammatory response to the infection and it creates a lot of bleeding so Mm. sometimes sometimes it's just darn mess so we we all help clean we clean the room we clean the bed we clean the body and it's sort of morbid because the charge nurse and is like, we have another patient that needs this room. We got to get this room clean. Mm. Mm. Oh my gosh. So we clean, we double bag, we get our post-mortem care and charting and talk to the family. Cause the, and the family's probably been in on it from the beginning because the doc will normally call and say, we're currently performing chest compressions and doing this. Please tell us how long you want us to do this. Mm. If if we can't get this person back. So, you know, we're maybe we'll talk to the family about, do you have a funeral home? And sometimes you end up crying with the family. And Mm -hmm. um, then security comes, takes the body away. Environmental comes, cleans, and a new patient's there. Wow. Whoa. That is surreal. Yeah. And the, the other night I had a fellow nurse friend who, had three, well, let's see, did one, one patient was a rapid response, left because she was in the overflow that, that is ICU compatible, but we had someone die from the ICU, so he was able to come to the actual ICU and be, like, right near the doc's office and right near all the drugs that we needed for him. So when that patient came, she got another patient in that room. She ended up emergently, uh, she died 
Then she ended up getting a third patient. So she had three patients in one room and one shift. Holy moly. Wow. One, one almost died. One did die. And then she had a third patient before she was able to go home. My goodness. So it just keeps going. Keeps going. Yeah. I, a friend of mine, her sister works in an ICU. She said one shift, seven patients did not make it. Yeah, unfortunately, I, we have the same stories. Mm. We, I think, um, let's see, three, six, I think the most, we've had nine deaths in three days. Holy moly. So three, you know, three Tuesday, three Wednesday, three Thursday. And it's on, oh. How do you debrief? How do you com- decompress? How do you process that emotion? that goes on and on and on now for a year well that's the hard part we have we try to keep our senses of humor Mm -hmm. important chocolate chocolate helps (laughs) chocolate Um, is good in any occasion chocolate is good in every occasion um and just sometimes you straight up cry with the chaplain Mm. Mm. and um or if if there was a case where we had a young woman, she was not a COVID patient. She, um, she I can't even remember her story, but she died after a long code. A young mother with young children, oh, and that well. that nurse had to excuse herself mm. for a while. Mm. And there's been nurses who, um, if something really terrible happens, they have to go home. You know, it's, it's just, it can, if it's very traumatic or messy or bloody or something, they just might have to take some, a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, just... but otherwise we just, we just help. Like if, like if, uh, there's a lot of paperwork and charting, then I'll help clean the body while you do that. It's just trying to, I'll take out the trash while you guys do this. It's just helping being a team member and how to be able to survive that shift. Yeah. Especially there's multiple admissions and multiple codes. And it's like you sit and do the code charting. I'll take care of your other patient for a while. Mm. And then another patient will come through. You Mm -hmm. start over. Yeah. And it just, it's sort of just this weird, we've, we got to get this room cleaned quick because we have two in the ER. Mm. Oh my gosh, the guy died five minutes ago. Wow. Whew, that's a lot. That's a lot to soak in. But you yeah. guys you guys are keeping it together. And I'm glad that uh, the, the chaplains are there. And I hope there's no shaming in mental health in this. And that it's, it's okay to cry. Oh, I don't care if it's not. <laughs> I do anyway. Good, no. good. Like sometimes we're all just red face and sort of bleary and we'll just we'll calmly hey are you okay is there anything i can do for you Mm -hmm. and and honestly when i think you were asking how the sadness i think um it makes me worry about my own family my own mom and dad because they're quite they're quite healthy they don't smoke they you know they don't have my dad has some cardiac comorbidities, but so I'm sitting here freaking out all the time 
asking, Hey guys, are you feeling okay? Mm. Like how, how's dad's, you know, um, cause he had, he's a previous open heart, but he's, you know, climbing mountains and stuff. So it's like, mom, how's he doing? And mom, mom's a fibromyalgia. She has chronic pain. And I'm like, mom, how are you? You know, and she's a nurse. Mm. My mom's a nurse. Mm. So, and she works in um, the public school system. So I'm always like, mom, how are you? Are you mm. wearing your mask and all this kind of stuff? <laughs> they were 60, 61 and 67. So I'm like, I'm just freaking out mm-hmm. all the time. They're going to get sick. They're like, Brennan, stop. Yeah. We're fine. Yeah. Because of probably what you've seen, you know, you, you don't want it happening anymore, but it just doesn't stop. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm thinking it's here, it's close. It's in our, it's in my little Facebook newsfeed. My friend has this, my mom, my mom tested this and, or, you know, my mom's in the hospital, please pray. And I'm just like checking up on my mom and dad all the time. My husband's mom was in ICU for 28 days in July. Wow. She was, and she's a retired respiratory therapist and she was self-proning and she was a good little patient and she she never had to be intubated so but she we were very very scared for a while so just you're just worried about your own people Mm -hmm. your own family miss brennan what did you learn about yourself during this pandemic um i think i learned that it's well i think it's okay to despair sometimes Mm. to to be really scared and to be really mad Mm -hmm. but you can't you can't live there you have to find something that brings you hope and go live there and mental health is paramount like i'm you have to seek someone you have to you can't even if you're on a regular old med search floor, nobody's ever, you know, people are just in there, little post-op, and then they go home. Even if you work in an outpatient post-op or a clinic, and you're just seeing very stable people, it can still get to you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be in an ICU to be in despair. And so it's okay to despair, but you can't stay there. You have to move out. You have to go find something that brings you hope go go outside and exercise <laughs> go walk <laughs> your dog it's even this the simplest the simplest things to get your mind off of it i don't i don't know how to say it you know cuz i don't know how to say it correctly to get through but to cope yeah to learn to handle the stress and and be able to be rejuvenated again. What is that for you? Well, my answer is going to be faith-based, and I'm not trying to push my agenda on your listeners. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that that uh, is your coping mechanism, and spirituality, as we've talked about, is a very is a very good thing. Yeah. So my coping mechanism. I have many. Yeah. My first. My hurt. My first is my the hope I personally have in Christ. Yes. And, my relationship, not my, not a religion, but my relationship with Christ means that this despair is not the end. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I, other things, 
is um, exercising, taking a neighborhood walk with my husband and daughter, playing with the dog. Like, I really enjoy even when I'm when I'm at home, when I'm off, and I get to do my little domestic housewife day that I <laughs> so lovingly refer to it. Like, I cook something special for my family or actually, like, dust the furniture or something. Some, some or like catch up on the laundry, like things like that, that just help stay on, like do something in the house or bake cookies or something like fun stuff. Do you feel that that is, that you become more mindful with these quote mundane things like the laundry and how you would appreciate that or walking the dog or being with your family and, and being mindful of the moment that there's love, there's hope, even though next shift I will face it again, that despair and sometimes feelings of helplessness. Well, and you know what it is, is like, I'm, I'm lucky enough to like, see my husband and kiss him and mm. hug my daughter and say, let's go bake cookies together. What if my husband was in the ICU? Mm. I couldn't even see him because mm. they're not allowing visitors. So the, the, my mom is healthy. My dad is healthy. Like I'm able to go see them. I'm able to be in person. I have a friend right now whose mother, she cannot see. Wow. And I, I'm checking on her every day and she misses her mom. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can just go over and hug my mom anytime I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these moments with family are just, you, it's more important than it's ever been. Because I'm surrounded by these lonely people. Yeah, yeah, lonely. Lonely is, is the word, right? They're alone in this hospital bed and they cannot even touch their families and talk to them especially if they're intubated and, you know, uh, the process that they have to go through when they survive that. And oh, yeah. can you imagine the uphill battle they have in front mm-hmm, of them? Mm-hmm. The physical, the mental toll, everything. Yeah. I had a triathlete who was, he was trached, but he had a valve, like he could talk to me. And he was telling me all about how he used to do Ironmans. And you know, I don't even know if he, I think he was COVID, but he got some other crazy pneumonia or some, I don't really remember, but <laughs> he was wobbling just to get on a bedside commode. Wow. Wow. And he, his heart rate would get up into the 130s when he would simply stand. So he's going to have to start from square one, learning how to literally walk again. It's going to be a long time before he can do an Ironman. Mm, mm. So it's like the guy who's super in shape is going to need so much physical, maybe occupational therapy. And so mental these, health, too. Oh, for sure. Right? The grieving of the self, the former self that I'm, I did Ironman, and that's, wow. And then now I cannot do things for myself. Can you imagine how depressed that might make him? Mm, mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. You showed us how you were grateful about being with a family, baking cookies, walking the dog, 
you found strengths in your physical. I know that. That's for sure because you did some awesome things physically, that transformation. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's just say I enjoy eating carbs again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you transformed. You became another person and... And that was your becoming of somebody else that I can attain. And you found your strength in doing something else, right? I'm not just a mom and I'm not minimizing mommies because I'm a mom myself. And, 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 and um, you know, you're a female, you're, you're, you're strength, you're a nurse. You're able to teach your patients. You're able to teach the family and how they can cope again with this pandemic and how they can survive and move on like with your patient who did the Ironman right yeah you connect to them I think that is a strength that you you have how does that equate and I know with your music therapy tell me about that oh well um I I should mention I'm not like a music therapist I'm just a musician but I am lucky. I have gotten to play at the hospital on two two different occasions. Oh, um, not for it's kind of sad. Not for a living patient, but I played for an honor walk um, for a patient who was donating organs. Oh wow! Yeah, and I've gotten to do that two times, and it's really special because every all the staff lines up and sort of honors this patient as they're going to the OR. Yeah, I've seen those videos uh, that is just heartwarming and you become tearful. And with your cello music playing in the background, wow. Yeah, so it was a really neat opportunity to just go and play some hymns or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm also able, thankfully, to sometimes get paid to play my cello. (laughs) So it's another little little tiny source of income very tiny last year because all the gigs got canceled oh, but um, oh. <laughs> everybody decided not to get married that <laughs> um, <laughs> music is a way to whether you're a musician or not or not music is a way to just sort of leave for a while mm, mm. it's it's amazing what you do miss brennan you you're balancing your life yeah i mean I don't know if balancing is the right word, but we find harmony in what we do, right? In healthcare. Music term. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 there's so much chaos. There's the pandemic, there's all of these things that's happening right now, but you find your family, your social strength, your your physical strength, your coping mechanism with with everything else. And you're sharing your skills. I appreciate that. Well, that's that's kind of you to say. I love uh, I love bringing my cello. It's like I wish I could have it on my back all the time, but it's really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe when this pandemic uh, is uh, over, maybe we'll uh, sit by the fire and just listen to your cello music. That that would be great. So thank you so much for uh, talking to us. I appreciate you, Miss uh, Brennan, uh, for sharing your insight and your uh, resiliency and your strength during this pandemic. 
Well, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for um, for always supporting me, whether it's on Facebook or Aww. in person. Yes, yes. And we hope to see you again soon and maybe, uh, you know, the hugs and all that. But oh, no, we won't have to fist bump anymore. <laughs> I know, I know. Kudos to you and your team. Kudos to your family for being so supportive of you. And, and your peers in the uh, medical ICU. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for what you do and your military service. Oh, you're very welcome. You take care, Ms. Brennan, and we'll see you online. How's that? <laughs> yes, I'll see you on Facebook. Yes, yes. It's, that's our social connection right now. Exactly. You take it easy and you have a, a good day. You too. Bye, Ms. Sanchez. Bye-bye. Psych Nurse Practitioner Podcasts is a weekly podcast where I share with you my passion in the field of psychiatry. My hope is to build a community where we can have empathy and compassion for those struggling with mental health conditions. Find me on Instagram at Anna Sanchez underscore psych underscore NP and at Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner and subscribe to my podcasts. Thank you. The Psych Nurse Practitioner podcast does not constitute for a medical or psychiatric advice. This podcast is not intended to replace professional psychiatric assessment. The ideas expressed in this podcast do not reflect the position of the speakers, authors, and affiliated medical and nurse practitioner organizations. Ana Sanchez is a dual certified family and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She currently practices as a psych nurse practitioner in the local emergency room. She has experiences in both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric setting. She has consulted in the past as a psych nurse practitioner as well. She has teaching experience as an adjunct clinical faculty instructor in both med surge and psychiatry. She currently serves as a medical officer in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. She is passionate in the care of those with mental health conditions. She is also the founder and executive director for Hope Center for Veterans, which is a nonprofit organization that increases positive outcomes for veterans.